345 million people in 82 countries were experiencing acute food insecurity by June 2022. Climate change, the coronavirus pandemic, and rising food prices due to the conflict in Ukraine threatened to drive this number even higher. One important path to promoting long-term food security is building well-functioning agri-food systems. An agri-food system includes everyone from farmers to distributors and consumers, the environment in which they operate, and the rules and standards governing that environment. In low-income countries in particular, well-functioning agri-food systems have a vital role to play in both promoting food security and reducing poverty. These systems are especially important now in the face of global shocks. So how can the World Bank Group and other actors support countries in developing agri-food systems that are productive, resilient, and sustainable? And what are the lessons for future efforts? Welcome to What Have We Learned, the Evaluation Podcast. I'm your host, Brenda Barbour of the World Bank Group's Independent Evaluation Arm, IEG. I will be exploring the importance of developing well-functioning and resilient agri-food systems with my guest, Dr. Agnes Kalibata. Dr. Kalibata is the president of AGRA, formerly known as the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. She was the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy to the 2021 Food System Summit and the Minister of Agricultural and Animal Resources of Rwanda from 2008 to 2014. She has been heading AGRA since 2014 and has a distinguished track record as an agricultural scientist, policymaker, and thought leader. Welcome, Dr. Kalibata, to What Have We Learned? Let's begin with your experience as the Minister of Agriculture and Animal Resources of Rwanda. How did you approach the development of an agri-food system in Rwanda, and how did that work fit with the national development goals of the country? Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really happy to be part of this conversation for a topic that I care about uh, very much. And of course, uh, for, to, to start with a question on Rwanda is something I'm particularly passionate about. When I joined the government in Rwanda, the country had um, an agenda, the 20, 2020 vision. It had, it had a vision and had a number of things it needed to achieve. Uh, part of that was being able to feed itself with an increasing population that was projected to double by 2020, uh, to increase its um, per capita income, which was one of the lowest at 290 uh, US dollars then, and to increase uh, its annual growth at 7%. Um, if it was to be able to achieve uh, the things it needed to achieve to feed itself, uh, we really needed to grow at about 7%. We really needed to design programs that ensure that we leave nobody behind. The agricultural sector was one of those that had millions of people uh, living in agriculture, and we needed to design a program that ensured that smallholder farmers that are in the sector can be catered for. So we designed what we call the land consolidation program that recognizes that Rwanda is, has very small pieces of land. And if you're going to do anything that is market-oriented, you need to think about how to bring along everyone. We also worked with the principle of um, do what, uh, you know, work with what works well for different regions. It's, it's kind of regionalization by commodity where <clears throat> rather than force a commodity in a given environment, 
we actually uh, went with what what was naturally endowed in different regions of the country. Uh, and then we superimposed on that an intensification program that we recognized that we really needed to increase productivity at the bottom line. For small pieces of land, farmers needed to increase productivity and, and have access to markets. So all those were done really in service of one goal. The Vision 2020, ensure proper growth, ensure... Um, ensure 7% growth and ensure that we can feed ourselves. We're able to reduce poverty by 12% points. Uh, a World Bank study showed that 65% of that was related, was related to growth in the agricultural sector, of which 15% was outside the sector but related to the sector. Uh, so we ensure that farmers get the productivity they, they need but also have access to markets. Congratulations. That's an amazing accomplishment. And I wonder now with the coronavirus pandemic, have you kept up with the outcomes in Rwanda and and was there any reversal to that progress? Uh, With the corona pandemic, uh, like any other country, uh, Rwanda has had its challenges. I think the area that has suffered the most uh, from the pandemic um, nearly every part of, 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 of society has f- suffered the most, but I, I specifically wanted to call out the SME sector, the business sector, mm-hmm. where these businesses, because of the disfun- disruptions of value chains, a number of businesses had to stop, um, but then it implied that either they, they can't come back up, uh, they are going to, to eat up their capital bases, and not be able to survive the challenges of COVID. Um, so that was really an area that was badly hit. Of course, uh, communities were also badly hit. As you would imagine, beyond health, the uh, communities were really badly affected in the sense that um, the agricultural sector is what we are using to, to reduce poverty for a country that is purely agricultural. It's really a source of income for a lot of people. And then from a national perspective, most of these countries are struggling with um, the aftermath, with the fact that so much resources were diverted to dealing with the health challenges of COVID and building the infrastructure that goes with it. But then the Russia-Ukraine conflict that does bring all sorts of challenges, when countries are beginning to think that they could recover from that, Mm. then it really gets worse with increasing food prices, increasing cost of living, increasing fertilizer prices. I would say that Rwanda hasn't been, uh, hasn't, been different, very different from what other countries are, uh, are suffering. Given all of these compounding crises that, that are increasing food insecurity, are there lessons from your experience with the Vision 2020 activities that can be applied to today's situation? There are a number of things from the, the work that we did in Rwanda that can be applied to a number of, of areas. And there are also things that I'm, I'm seeing in the current work that I'm doing. But in Rwanda specifically, being able to focus on what we can do well where, being able to ensure that we are actually creating the right balance between the environment and people is, is really great and important. Being able to conserve that part of the environment, how we can conserve it is important. I understand your parents were small farmers in Rwanda and then in Uganda after your family got displaced during Rwanda's struggle for independence in the early 1960s. 
Did that early experience have any impact on the career that you chose or how you go about your work? I learned that uh, smallholder farmers don't need to be poor, that they are poor because they are isolated. We were isolated from anything in the world. Uh, they are isolated uh, in a world where seed systems are working, in a world where farmers have choices, in a world where fertilizers exist, in a world where markets exist. But they don't know because they are that, that isolated. And this is not just for refugees like my parents were. These are for rural communities in Uganda as well. I didn't see that rural communities in Uganda had any better opportunity than I did or my parents did. So the sad part is that the rest of the world was already living in plenty based on agriculture, right? And so what I learned when I went to school and realized that is that we need to get access and to improve access to these villages. And for me, the biggest discovery of all times, as far as I'm concerned, as a village girl, is that someone figured out that we can use a, a motorbike, a bicycle, and take seeds and fertilizers to villages because these villages have sugar and, and Pepsi Cola and Coca-Cola. How does Coca-Cola get to a village and seeds don't get there? Right. right. <laughs> For me, being able to set up those village shops that encourage, that allow farmers to have access to the inputs the rest of the world has access to has been transformational. And I used that in Rwanda. I used it in the sense that it didn't matter how far the village was. Farmers had access to these things. But the next thing then, the next day the president goes there, they are saying, we want a road. So the production and production surplus becomes the reason for farmers to demand a road. That's why I call it the biggest innovation in rural farming. Uh, that bicycle uh, that is taking seeds and fertilizers to farmers uh, is, is, was very important. But then... Linking that to my own life then, when I was Minister of Agriculture, I actually took uh, a good variety of seed to my mom. In, she owns one, two acres somewhere in Rwanda. And I said, listen, this is your chance to really get the most from the agricultural sector. And she did. And she got five metric tons where she usually would get one ton. And she told me one thing. She said, if you can't give me a market in time, if you can't tell me how to process these things in good time, if you can't show me how to store them, don't bring this seed back to me. <laughs> right. Fix those market failures, right? <laughs> yeah. So IEG released a report last month on the World Bank Group's support to countries on developing agri-food economies. The report found that smallholders and small producers, especially in low-income countries, often struggle with low productivity and inadequate access to markets, suppliers, distributors, and other actors in the value chain. What are your insights on supporting smallholders and producers in ways that ensure that agri-food systems are not only resilient, but also inclusive? Farmers are farmers. At the end of the day, they expect to get good seeds, they expect to get fertilizers, they expect to get markets. They expect markets to work for them. So the ability of being able to pull these things together, ensuring that, uh, that they have the service ecosystem for farming working for them is extremely important. When I was reading this World Bank report, it just occurred to me that we, we just can't manage agriculture in phases. You can't say, oh, today you have seeds and fertilizers, so you get a good yield. No, the farmer gets stuck. We need to look at the whole the ecosystem as a whole. 
right? We need to look yes. at production happens in a market environment, in a financial environment where SMEs have the ability to make markets work. That's the only way we can move forward. But we keep funding things in phases. We, as governments, we keep coming at this in phases or in programs that don't integrate and, and everything gets left on the, on the table. Those farmers will not adopt it. They know the value of these commodities, but they want to do it. Those policymakers should talk to your mom. She has the insight. But it's, it's also what the IEG report was really emphasizing is the need to connect them to all parts of the system, right? So that, that's great. Here in Agro, we have created an ecosystem for, that really allows us to partner with businesses primarily, uh, give them an opportunity to provide the services they, they are able to provide and they are set up to provide. And we focus on the weak links of why that system wouldn't function. We focus on the extension part. We focus on local distribution networks and supporting small businesses to survive in those environments. And then really encourage private sector to superimpose their businesses. And it has worked very well for us. Uh, in, in some cases, we see very good adoption levels especially if the market is working. And where we don't see good adoption levels of improved technologies, it's because the markets are not working. And there's nothing that will work will make a farmer adopt whatever technology if the market is not working for them. From what we've seen is that, that, that farmers are able to, to engage, you do the right things from an inclusion perspective. What I wanted to add is um, two things. The, the part of including youth, in many of these programs we talk about, and including women. FAO still talks about a 40% productivity gap when it comes to, to women. This comes from the fact that women don't access extension necessarily uh, as well as men do. They don't go to the meetings where extension programs are discussed, or some of these things are happening. Some of the crops that women work with are not receiving the, the, the type of support that is needed from a research perspective, from a business development perspective. And so um, they end up being the crops that are left on the fields or um, mm. in homes once, once there's surplus. So ensuring that for gender, we do provide the same services and we do focus on ensuring that we provide the level of inclusion is extremely important at the farm level, but also from a business perspective. At Agro, we have created a platform we call Value for Her, just to ensure that women businesses in Africa in the agricultural sector have the opportunity to gain knowledge, have the opportunity to have access to financial inclusion, have the opportunity to understand the challenges and the opportunities for financial inclusion and the expectations. The platform ensures that they have a meeting place. We have over 3,500 women businesses that are signed up to this platform. Some of them are doing pretty well. Some of them are not doing as well. They share knowledge about markets. They share knowledge about um, how to access financing. They share knowledge of all sorts of things. And even as women share knowledge on how to manage a business as a woman, we provide support. We provide support in the sense that we do have a deal room uh, where we allow women, women to put forward their businesses, to come and defend their businesses to investors. So we expose them to investors and investment opportunities. We profile them, we award the best, so we keep ensuring that, that there's attention to what they are doing. And then we try to understand the things that limit financial, or financial access for, for this, uh, this platform of women, and then try to work with them. 
So those are the type of things we do in addition to really ensuring that it's a learning platform where they have an opportunity to learn from each other, but also to learn about the latest knowledge uh, um, out there. It's a digital platform, so it's easy to access from anywhere. You don't have to travel from where you are to be able to be part of this platform. I was going to talk about youth mostly because I'm particularly passionate about this topic. Africa's landscape is full of farmers, but every type people talk about farmers, they say, oh, uh, Africa's farmers are 60 years old. Honestly, you've seen a 60-year-old person in Africa. Are they farming? <laughs> so, <laughs> so Africa's farmers, 45% of them are young. They're below 35. But just because they look old does not mean that they're old. 45% of the people that are farming in Africa are below 35. People wow. are farming 18 to, to, to 29 is a huge percentage, about 30% are farming. So I, I really think that there's an opportunity to work, to increase productivity, especially labor productivity for this group of people, so that farming is a viable business for them because they are in it as a business, but also it's, it's an opportunity for them to, string, to strengthen the ability to feed their families, something that is increasingly becoming, especially from a nutrition perspective, something that is increasingly becoming elusive. You said 45% of farmers in Africa are under 35. Is that correct? Yes, it's true. I didn't know that. That's why I said just because they look old does not mean that they are old. What are the unique needs of these very young farmers? That's a really, really important question. These farmers need uh, the agricultural sector to be productive. They are not in it to feed their families. They need to make money. They want to be able to um, have better productivity on their labor. That means they need improved seed, very good seed. And, and we know that with good seed, you can, in the same place that you're getting one ton, you could get five metric tons. Wow. Uh, they need to be able to use fertilizers, of course, but they also need mechanization. They also want to link into technology. They now know that you can have an Uber tractor. You can over a tractor on your phone and be able to access it. They know you can find a market on your phone and be able to access it. How is Agra specifically supporting them? This is a program that we are taking on um, more recently in our new strategy because we see the opportunity again to, to engage them better. We are using them now as extensionists, where we see that extension has completely failed in most of these places, we are using young people to take on extension, um, um, basically self-employed as a self-employed opportunity. We are using them to take on uh, village shops for inputs. But more importantly, we, we see them as an opportunity to be able to ensure that nutrient rich varieties that are new, um, high-yielding varieties that are there, that these things become viable in villages. I guess the most important part of young people is creating a business ecosystem in villages because they understand uh, how to create this business ecosystem. And you will notice in Africa, actually, people that were connected to the digital system, the young people were, were actually busy finding how to create businesses using the digital environment. And those businesses thrived and went up faster. We have since seen Uber motorcycles taking vegetables around. We have since seen uh, you know, Uber uh, input distributors. So these are things that are beginning to work and work very well for young people, creating an integrated marketplace 
that services farmers, that is part of actually what your report talks about, is extremely important. These young people do understand and would love to be part of that ecosystem. We are beginning to see that that's an area we can enhance, but more importantly, we need a policy ecosystem that works for young people. We need mm-hmm. to be able to provide space for them in all these businesses. We need to provide space for them so that they are not struggling to survive, that they can actually thrive. Well, let's talk about the lessons for international organizations such as the World Bank and UN agencies in supporting countries to build inclusive, resilient, and productive food systems. What is needed to get us back on track to achieve the SDGs? For all of us, World Bank, UN, the biggest lesson of what has been going on in the agricultural sector, the need to build resilience, inclusivity, productivity, all these things are happening because of the challenges we are, we are having in our environment. And the biggest lesson for me is the, the current reversal of lessons at, and, and work and things we have achieved over many years. And this is happening at many levels. It's happening at the national level, where governments were beginning to build themselves from low income to middle income. All this is being eaten away in, you know, and, and reversed in our very eyes. Businesses are struggling to, to stay on top of the environment we're working with. Households now have to pay 40 to 60 percent uh, to be able to achieve, uh, to be able to have the things they, they had last year, uh, just ex- to be able to be exactly in the same spot as we were last year, they're paying forty to sixty percent more. All these mm. things require that we think differently. For me, looking at, at the World Bank as the institution that supports most of these countries, we can't be in that type of environment where there are all these reversals, where there are all these challenges, and do business as usual. Mm-hmm. We cannot support the same type of loans. We need to think about what do we need to build in our instruments, in the instruments we design for countries to be able to help them de- de- uh, deal with the challenges they are dealing with. We can't have the same conditionalities of loans. What, what do your loans require and what are you going to do differently? What do your programs require and what are you going to do differently? The ground below our feet is shifting very fast because of climate change, because of, of, of conflict, and because of uh, our failing food systems. The World Bank, the United Nations, what vision do they have for the future of where we are going? They must have, they must stay one step ahead of this problem. Otherwise, everybody's struggling. We can't come at this reacting every time something happens. We need to be projecting the future based on the challenges we have. And you guys have huge projection capacity. So it would be good to see how you project and are able to tell us how we stay ahead of these problems. I'm so glad we're having you have this conversation. Let's turn to the future. How do you think agri-food systems will evolve or need to evolve? And what are the new opportunities and challenges that the future will bring? The most important part of where we are going is agri-food systems need to evolve, right? We do know that um, we are impacting the environment. We do know that we are impacting people's health uh, through the type of nutrition that is put through the agri-food system. So, so we must evolve. We must focus on sustainability from an environmental perspective. What does, again, doing agriculture look like uh, to ensure that there's a future system of agriculture for, for our children and, and their children. 
And then we must ask ourselves about the cost to health. You know, in the agricultural sector, in, in trying to achieve food, there are two things that we don't factor in enough. We don't factor in the cost to the environment. <laughs> there are opportunities to ensure that doing agriculture is not necessarily damaging the environment. And we can build uh, environmental sustainability into the work that we do. So that is going to have to be one of them. And then the nutrition part. We lose a lot by dele- delegating nutrition to the health sector. Nutrition comes in as a public uh, public challenge as opposed to a public opportunity. In the Food System Summit, we talked about the true cost of food. The true cost of food came in as the cost to the environment and the cost to health. These are real costs. These are real dollar figures that we actually account for in the wrong sectors. And we don't bring them to the agricultural sector as dollar figures we should be accounting for as negatives in the agricultural sector. Because we pay for them elsewhere. So we could avoid those by ensuring that we are diversifying the agricultural sector, right? We are, uh, we are producing what, what goes well where. We are producing what works with the environment and we are producing with what, what works with our health. These are all opportunities that were highlighted during the Food Systems Summit. And these are things that we can expound on. I, I, just to give an example, in Africa, we keep talking about uh, importing all sorts of food. But honestly, uh, we produce a lot of cassava and yam, and we have an opportunity to produce millet in the drier areas, which we don't do because mm-hmm. we have not invested in, in, in improving these value chains. We, we treat them as local and that's zero value. No, we need to ensure that we are provide a, providing the same level of research capacity, business research capacity, trying to understand these commodities and what they bring for us. And I, I see that uh, uh, there, there are some things that we need to think through, even as we try to improve the food system. We must ensure that... Um, that designing the food system recognizes the local context of each country. At the end of the day, it needs to come back to country level. What is each country capable of advancing? And how can we, as different coalitions that are happening in different spaces, be able to support countries where they are at? What are their needs? What are they moving forward? What are they doing well that we can support them with? So one of the biggest dangers is to look at this as a global program and not bring it to the ground and show that it serves people where they are at. And then the last point I wanted to make is to really ensure that as we build our food systems, we ensure that we are coordinating right. We are not pitting one sector against the other. So the environment and agriculture sector are always fighting. (laughs) Just ensuring that advancing food systems is not advancing uh, challenges between these two sectors, that this is actually an opportunity for them to coordinate and come together better, I think would be good. The food system is a, it's a global challenge, right? Uh, and it's failing across the world, right? But how, when I see how we engage in the food system summit, um, and when I see the follow-up thereafter, there's a whole lot of interest from the, uh, the global south, mostly because these countries are facing real challenges. I mean, uh, to give you an example, here in East Africa, uh, we basically have a failed season this season, and it is one of, of many. So these countries stepped forward, the African continent stepped forward with a common continental position. 49 out of 55 countries were engaged. I don't get the same feel from the global north. 
We did get good funding from the Global North, but this was not about funding. This was about commitment to a failing food system. We want to see the same commitment from the North as it is from the South, because food systems are contributing 30% to emissions, and when they don't work, the environment that we are working in won't work. Many thanks for joining me, Dr. Kalabata. It has been a fascinating conversation. To learn more about IEG's work on evaluating World Bank Group support on food systems and nutrition, please visit ieg.worldbank.org. Don't forget to subscribe for future podcasts. This has been What Have We Learned? The Evaluation Podcast. Thank you for listening.